This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 41, our look at how clinical trial designs and strategies are evolving, plus from the vault, a section of the 2020 episode that asked what we could learn from past drug trial failures and set the stage for researchers to learn the lessons we talk about in this week's episode. This week, our conversation from the vault comes from Season 1, Episode 34, in November 2020, the episode where our listeners first got to hear Jorn Schottenberg discussing his own work. The conversation starts with with Jorn talking about how he and co-author Just Grant came to write the paper on the Nash Drug Trial Graveyard. In the course of just 15 minutes, he discusses some of the areas for improvement he feels clinical strategy and design will require. Stephen concurs and amplifies. And Global Liver Institute founder and CEO Donna Cryer comments from a patient and patient advocate perspective. Listening from almost two years later, it is striking how much has changed in the situations Jorn described in his paper. Notably, we now conduct robust phase 2B trials as proof of concept before heading into phase 3, and we use non-invasive tests to help place the right patient in the right trial. To get a sense of how far we've come, listen for what is not said in this conversation, notably the names and acronyms for many of the NITs we've come to rely on today. I found this fascinating and was impressed by how prescient the paper was and how much progress we've made against these issues. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schottenberg. So we went back to 2017 and looked at programs that were halted since then and um, summarized 10 of those trials in, in that article that's just been published. And of course, there were three phase three trials uh, among those and um, some earlier trials we looked at. And uh, I think the, the article gives a good overview, um, starting out with some of the pathogenic drivers that we think discussing current treatment paradigms, like you've discussed on the podcast before, looking at predominantly metabolic drugs or antifibrotic drugs or anti-apoptotic drugs. And um, despite looking at so many different mechanisms of actions, uh, still today, we do not have an approved drug. Of course, there was one trial that has been successful. The obidicolic acid reached the pre-plant uh, interim analysis endpoint and showed significant improvement of fibrosis. But in the aftermath, and you, you discussed it at length too in previous episodes, it wasn't granted accelerated approval by the FDA. So I think there's also a lot of lessons to be learned from that. And um, thinking about trials that have failed, the first ones that come into mind are, of course, the big phase three trials that have been run by uh, Gilead. The Stella three and four trials have been exceptionally trial for, for having enrolled so many patients with bridging fibrosis and compensated cirrhosis and really a sophisticated drug trial design in a multi-center setup and, and, and multinationalities. Still, the trials in the end did not show superiority of that compound. The big question is, how can you end up in a, in a phase three trial in patients with very advanced disease and uh, treat them for a year and, and still not come up with more positive results than you have? And I think the answer is obvious. You, you have to do a phase three trial to, to get the final answer if the drug is effective. The question is, could you have done better in, in the beginning and, and, and maybe looked at different aspects to, for example, enrich your patient population with patients that would have had a benefit. So I think that's the whole thought process that went into that manuscript. And then we go go on and, and, and discuss those different compounds and, and try to summarize and uh, come up with some thoughts uh, on the way forward, because that's the most important aspect of, of having a failed trial to actually learn from, from failure and try to improve for the future and, and come up with uh, better solutions, potentially modified endpoints, potentially enrichment of, of clinical trials with, with patients that are more likely to respond to your specific uh, mechanism of action. Could you, could you give a couple of examples of specific things that might have 
work better if followed the steps that you're describing? Yeah, sure. So I, I think I started out with the um, Solancetip trials, and one of the major critics uh, in, in that trial design was that there wasn't a big or a, a phase 2B trial that actually trialed that specific population versus a placebo arm, for example, to um, be in the position to actually then move to a phase 3 trial and have more robust data uh, in the beginning. Solancetip uh, has had very good uh, target engagement data in, in preclinical models, but even in the phase 2 and even the phase 3 trial, they were able to show that you hit your your target. So they showed P38 phosphorylation goes down, so on. So TIP does what it's supposed to do, but still you didn't get the benefit for the patient in terms of the primary endpoint being examined, namely halt of progression to cirrhosis or reversal of uh, cirrhosis. And one of the major critics of has been, of course, if, if you would have done a phase 2B trial comparing this to placebo, you might have picked up a signal that might have shown the lower efficacy uh, from the beginning and, uh, without having to do uh, such a big phase 3 trial. So I think, you know, preclinical data and, and, and running a, a phase 2B trial with your target population, deciding on a drug dose you want to use, and then replicate that uh, in the phase 3 trial. That's critical, and I think that's one of the main key findings we, ha we have from that article. Stephen Harrison. Bjorn, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for writing this amazing review article with your colleague. It makes me think a little bit about, about Michael Jordan. You know, everybody knows Michael Jordan is He's my era, so he's, he's, in my mind, probably the world's best basketball player. And maybe some of the newer generation with LeBron would, would argue that. But, you know, I, one thing that I, I, I love about him are some of his quotes. And he, uh, he says, the key to success is failure. Failure makes you work harder. Obstacles create opportunities. I missed 9,000 shots. I've lost 300 games. 26 times I took the game-winning shot and missed. And it, it makes me think that, you know, when I relate that to Nash, that this is not novel or unique to Nash. Every disease state has a failed trial graveyard. Hepatitis C, Yorn, if you remember, was littered with drugs that didn't make it across the finish line, either efficacy reasons or adverse event reasons or a combination of both. Your paper highlights several things that I think are incredibly fascinating and are worthy of a discussion one of which you mentioned, and that is designing the right early phase trials to really get it an answer of whether the drug is going to be efficacious or, or not. One of the, the comments or questions I have for you is we, we do a lot of a lot of phase two trials and we're always looking for opportunities to shave some time off development and Usually that comes in the form of a phase 2A slash 2B or a 1B, 2A. And some of the time we underpower these studies. Other times we don't necessarily have a marker of target engagement. And I think, you know, a couple of the, the phase threes that have been done, we really didn't have a way to know for sure that what we were hitting the target we wanted to hit and that we were sustaining the target by binding to it for a long enough period of time to get the result that we wanted. Can you talk a little bit about powering these phase twos? I, I think one of the challenges we have is we, we want to get effective drugs to the market. We want to get them there as quick as we can. And ultimately, sponsors want to do that without spending billions and billions of dollars. 
along the way. So, you know, it, it costs money to enroll large phase twos. But I think what we've seen repeatedly is that these guys are often underpowered and it doesn't really come to light till we move into phase three. So maybe some initial thoughts on markers of target engagement and underpowering these studies. Totally agree, Stephen. And and, and thanks for summarizing this and, and, and highlighting this. You know, to me, I think we haven't done a good enough job to really identify which patient do we want to treat with which drug. We're bound to histology at this point, and we've discussed it within this podcast and, and in the literature. Histology is an imperfect reference standard to identify patients. It's a static measure. Um, we do enroll based on the activity and the stage of the disease. I think if you have a drug that hits a certain target. You want to enroll patients that are potentially based on that target, more likely to develop a significant endpoint. And, and that's not reflected by histology in all cases. So I think moving forward and learning from those failed trials, we have to better understand how does histology relate to the target that I am hitting with my drug. And I think there's been a lot of advancement uh, made in that field by defining thresholds that do correlate with histology, thinking of MRI, PDFF, and, you know, uh, three or four or five years back when, when those trials we're summarizing here in, in that paper have been designed, all, all that information wasn't there. So I think we're in a much better position today to actually recommend or advise on, on selecting our patient populations. And I think we'll see more refinements. And even today, we already do, you know, uh, you need NASH based on histology, but some additional aspects using enrichment aspect for your, for your trial based on your MOA uh, will be very useful to then enrich that patient population. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, thinking about histology and the noisy endpoint that it is, one of the things that these early trials, the trials that have failed and even some that were successful have taught us is we need to develop non-invasive tests that can help us predict the probability that we'll hit that noisy endpoint. And through a collective body of literature that's beginning to gel, we're seeing, particularly with MRI-PDFF, this ability with some specific metabolic mechanisms of action, an ability to predict response. And so I think for sponsors doing early phase trials that are metabolic, I'm hopeful that that this will continue to broaden and that we'll be able to apply at least that particular metric to early phase trials to predict late stage results on histology. But one thing I would say is we still need to show in a phase 2B trial consistent histopathologic response that reaches statistical significance to take that forward into phase 3. And it needs to be done in an appropriately powered study. And then another point that you made that's worth mentioning that I feel like we haven't done a good enough job on is identifying, pre-identifying those patients that are likely to respond to that particular mechanism of action. So where we've developed non-invasive tests, really it's in identifying a NASH patient with F2 to 4 fibrosis. And then we have non-invasive tests that can begin to stratify response numbers, whether it's an ALT reduction, a PDFF reduction, Pro-C3 or ELF improvement. But but we don't really yet know that if we look at these pre-screen factors and they meet certain thresholds, that that's a particular patient that should be given this particular mechanism of action drug because they're at the greatest likelihood of success. I think 
that's an area of unmet need still. Donna Cryer. So this has been really exciting to to hear, and I think the paper is so important for us to try to answer the question, you know, if we were setting up clinical trials today, what would we do? What have we learned? Um, what are the best practices? As I you know, listen with my patient ears and think about how to advise patients on choosing a trial. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening very, very thoughtfully and, and trying to find the clarity that we can communicate, you know, as, as, you all know I've been moving in the process of moving my my office for the past week or so, and the upside of that, of which hopefully eventually there'll be several, but the immediate upside of that is that I've sort of um, quickly gone through innumerable boxes the past decade of of my life in healthcare. You know, from early days participating in uh, NIH, uh, you know, learning health systems collaboratories and other initiatives, thinking about how to create a culture of, of clinical trial participation. You know, fast forwarding to working with PCORnet and thinking more about how we can, can create an, an infrastructure for ongoing data analysis and, and, and clinical trial data. Because the, the power that you all are speaking of are, are people and, and the data, the, the lab values, the histology values, the samples, uh, all of the information, the quality of life surveys that people living with NASH contribute to this process of research. And so I, I think about how important this analysis that you're and you, you, you've done and, and Stephen, you're so good at, at decoding what that means to advise both people who are considering participating in, in NASH clinical trials, but also ways that we can set up systems better whether that is combining information that lies dormant in obesity trials, diabetes trials, or just within EHRs to provide us some of this information that may help this, you know, this, this targeting, this predictive exercise that would help us get to a better answer faster. So I just hope we think as creatively as possible and think about the assets that we have to today in late 2020 and, and applying the, the learnings from all of these shots on goal. Donna, I think this is very important. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, how do I actually as a physician decide how to match my patient to the trial. If I have two trials open, let's say a phase two running for 12 weeks and a phase three running for a year, and a patient sitting in front of me, what should be my advice? How do I select the patient for the trial? And looking at his histology, this might be one answer, but it, I think there's so more need for, from the patient side in there that, um, of course, um, the answer is much more complex than that. We've had a, um, a, a recent, very, very robust uh, conversation driven by one of the patients um, who graduated from GLI's Advanced Advocacy Academy in our first year, talking to um, another patient from this year's class. And they're sort of joint evaluation of current trials in a, in a rare liver disease and rethinking those trials. So, you know, the earlier graduate had been part of working with some well-known researchers in the design of the trials. And she was saying, you know, if I was thinking about it differently, if I was thinking about it again, I would have designed them differently from the patient point of view. There are trials that um, even though from all of our current 
quality by design standpoints, looked like well-functioning trials. She realizes that from the patient point of view, and it was reinforced by the by the you know younger patient uh, who we were talking with more recently. She was like, I wouldn't participate, you know, in in those trials because of these factors. Whether it was you know the time based on what's happening in the trial versus what she knew of and experienced in, in current clinical management. And so um, that was a, a really important conversation for me to be able to listen to both from uh, the patient researcher side and just the patient experiencing care and wanting to understand how to contribute, how to choose the right trials, and how to work on designing trials that get the best data, but are trials that patients actually want to participate in. And as we're, you know, thinking about wanting to advance the mechanisms of action with the greatest likelihood of success in NASH, I think that question of, you know, how are we advising patients and, and, and matching them to those trials um, that give the potential that can give the best ROI for the particular patient and, and for the field is 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 a very important uh, question. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be off next week, but Louise Campbell will lead Jorn Schottenberg and a panel of health professionals and patient advocates discussing the nurse's role in clinical care pathways. I can't wait to listen, and you shouldn't either. I'll be back the week after that for episode 43, which will look at the evolution of combination therapies and their place in our future. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.